0: we're doing over the course of these weeks together in the Advent season is thinking clearly, biblically, and hopefully very practically, what is the purpose, what is the meaning, what is the reason behind Christmas itself? Now, when you and I come across these passages in the scriptures where Jesus is describing his mission, As we've noted over the course of these weeks, he's going to use phrases such as, I came to, or I was sent to, or I appeared that. Each of those phrases is meant to describe the purpose of Jesus Christ entering into this world. And when he says, I came, he doesn't say, I was born. And the reason why he does not say that in these descriptions is that he was preexistent. He lived before Bethlehem. And so there will be only one time in his accounts where he will speak of being born, and we'll get to that in the fourth week of our Advent series, and ask ourselves the question, and why? Why did he choose that particular conversation to bring it up? But everywhere else he speaks of, I was sent to to. I came to, or I appeared that. You are given the reason. Now, as we noticed last week when we began this little series, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, Jesus had, said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now we're coming to his second significant statement, the second strategic teaching, if you will, with regard to this mission of why Bethlehem and why Christmas as we make our way now to Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17 down through verse 28. And again, what I want you to be looking for is his mission statement, his rationale, his reason, his strategy for why he entered via Bethlehem. And here we begin in verse 17. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now, when the ten heard about this, they were, they were indignant, weren't they, with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve
1: and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think we're on to something here.
0: Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, what we want to fully understand is the rationale, purpose. As our culture keeps changing, what's becoming clear is that people are losing their sense of purpose. This world becomes increasingly irrational.
1: People are wondering, what is the meaning?
0: And what we need to be drawn back to is the purpose of the one who came into this world, Jesus Christ, and ask, and why? And why do we celebrate this anyways? So, Father, I'm praying now that we will be true to your word, willing to submit our hearts, our minds, our lives to the authority of your word, Thanking you for Lord's Day, where we pause to consider what matters most. So, Father, you know the issues of the hour, you know the challenges we face, you know what keeps us awake at night, you know the sins we've committed. So Father, what I'm praying now again is a warming of our hearts. Stirring of our souls.
1: Engaging of our minds, because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only, praying these things again now in Jesus name. Amen
0: Nine eleven conjures up tremendous emotions, memories. Intentions in countless people throughout this nation. But it has embedded in the heart and in the mind of one particular man something of high significance. You see, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Birdwell from the U.S. Army Headquarters had just stepped into the Pentagon hallway when the fireball from one of the four hijacked planes hit him. And hit him head on. And after recovering from the initial shock, Birdwell realized that he was on fire. Jesus, I'm coming to see you were the first words that flowed from his lips, already being parched, singed by the flames. When doctors finally attended to him at the Washington Burns Center, they, they found second- and third-degree burns covering 40% of his body. And to save him, they had to immediately perform several skin graft operations. But a fo- powerful story begins to emerge. For You see, President George W. Bush... First Lady Laura Bush visited the Washington Burns Center two days later on September 13th. And among those they visited was Birdwell. Laura Bush went into that room, spoke to him for about a minute, but it seemed as though they had been lifelong friends. She made her way then over to Birdwell's wife, Mel, who was still wearing the dress from two days earlier, burned, singed, and splattered with blood, and embraced her and held her for what seemed like to Mel to be an eternity. And with tears rolling down her cheeks, she then looked at Mel and then looked back at Brian and said, And there's someone else who wants to see you. When at that moment, the president walked into the room. Now, standing at Brian's bedside, President Bush told him how proud he was of Bidwell. And considered both he and his wife to be heroes. And then, the most poignant moment. The president saluted Birdwell now Brian we are told struggled for 15 to 20 seconds to get his arm upright so that he could return the salute to his commander in chief but during this entire time President Bush never moved never dropped his salute until Brian was finished with his. In a subsequent interview, Birdwell was asked about the significance of that experience. Birdwell tells us now that he lives with, quote, renewed purpose. I'm a walking miracle, he says. Christ got a hold of me. In Him, not taking me, that means I have a mission to complete. He'll tell me what it is in due time. But it helps for me to know that there is a purpose to life. We're examining very carefully the whole matter of a purposeful Christmas. As we noted last week, it's the 10th anniversary of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. But as our argument begins to unfold, our argument is that you will not be able to understand the purpose for your life separate from the purpose of Christ giving Himself for your life. And our meaning is found in a relationship with Christ, not in separation from Christ. So what you and I have to do now is to look very carefully at this purposefulness, this meaning, this reason, that drips all over the Bethlehem scene, and ask ourselves now, how can this instruct us to be more effective in communicating what matters most in this growing culture of purposelessness? How do we describe what it means to know Jesus? In this passage, there are two major explanations that I want to extract with you this morning. The first one we're going to phrase like this, number one, that we need first to explain the plan of Christ's coming. The plan of Christ's coming. Now as we do so, and as we look over these verses, 17, 18, and 19, we've got to understand that these three verses are in fact the third major announcement that Christ has delivered to his disciples with regard to going to Jerusalem to die for people's sins. What I want to do is to draw out for you within this plan three essentials, three matters of significance found here. The first is this. Christ's plan involves certainty. I want you to follow with me, in fact, underline or circle, if you will, all the wills. Notice how he begins to phrase things. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, "We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed." Number one. And notice the details to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He is speaking with absolute certainty in advance of what's going to occur. And notice he speaks with such certainty regarding the details of this matter. But furthermore, he goes on to say, they will condemn him, you see, to death. And will turn him over to the Gentiles. And notice again the details here. To be mocked and flogged and crucified Three aspects. And then on the third day, not on a potential day, not down the road, notice the specifics here, notice the certainty here, notice the absoluteness here. On the third day, he will be raised. You spotted four wills in these verses. Now, what I want to argue for is this. It requires complete authority to speak with absolute certainty and then fulfill what has been stated. It requires complete authority to speak with absolute certainty and then fulfill what has been stated. And the climax is to be able to say with absolute certainty, And he will be raised on the third day. Now, you and I may be prone to gloss over this, but this is absolutely astounding. Because if you and I were watching the night of the election, we had various prognosticators telling us what the results were going to be. There were wide-ranging predictions. I have one particular in mind that was so far off And yet, at the same time, the person held to absolute certainty. The problem was that this person did not have ultimate authority over the results, yet stated with absolute certainty of the results. Now, what we have here is not mere prediction. What we have here is not mere trend analysis. What we have here is a statement that had already been established in eternity past, about what was going to happen at this critical moment in time. And then you and I find that all of these details were fulfilled, every I dotted, every T crossed. And we are utterly amazed then that Christ's plan involves certainty. This is not mere prediction. He already has established the outcome before it has even occurred. That's your Lord, born in Bethlehem. But now, what I want you to notice second of all is that Christ's plan involves a sequence. Suffering first, then glory. Notice here, he suffers, he dies, and then is raised from the dead. Now the people who had and would, in fact, be applauding him as he, as he rode on that donkey into Jerusalem, did not grasp what the Old Testament taught. In fact, it would take Peter some time to put two and two together. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, he wrote that concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Oh, they wanted they wanted the Savior. They just didn't want the sufferings. They wanted political salvation. What they failed to understand was Personal sin. Here then, Jesus Christ is now informing them he will suffer before being raised from the dead with absolute certainty. But it's the third of these now that grasps my attention that thirdly, Christ's plan involves both Jews and Gentiles. And what now amazes us is that he goes out of his way to explain that he would first be handed over to the Jews and the Jews then would hand him over to the Gentiles. So there were two significant periods of trials that would occur and this is exactly what happened. Read carefully. We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Happened. They will condemn him to death. Happened. We'll turn him over to the Gentiles, Pontius Pilate, Herod. And what happened in, that, in those days, in those hours leading to the crucifixion? Mocked. Happened. Flogged. Happened. Crucified. Past tense. Though still to come. Happened. And on the third day, raised to life. It takes complete authority to speak with complete certainty and then see complete fulfillment occur. What grabs our attention is that he refers to himself in verse 18 as the son of man. The son of man. And now you and I begin to get a sense of him. Where did this authority come from? Because in Daniel chapter 7, In that great vision to Daniel, there was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. So now he has taken from this prophecy, applied it to his life, Go on through with absolute detailed certainty of what's to come. It takes ultimate authority to be able to speak with absolute certainty of these matters and then fulfill them. George Vanderman writes, It was May 21st, 1946. The place, Los Alamos. Young, daring scientist was carrying out a necessary experiment in Preparation for the atomic test to be conducted in the waters of the South Pacific. He had successfully performed such an experiment many times before. In his effort to determine the amount of U 235 necessary for a chain reaction, what we call a critical mass, he would push two hemispheres of uranium together. Then, just as the mass became critical, he would push them apart with his screwdriver, instantly stopping the chain reaction. But that day, just as the material became critical, listen to this, the screwdriver slipped. The hemispheres of uranium came too close together. Instantly, the room was filled with dazzling, lush haze. Young Lewis Skloten, instead of ducking and thereby possibly saving himself, tore the two hemispheres apart with his hands, interrupting the chain reaction. In this self-forgetful daring, he saved the lives of the seven other scientists in the room. And as he waited for their car that would come to take him to the hospital, he quietly turned to them and said, you will come through all right but I haven't the faintest chance myself. Nine days later, he died in agony.
1: Now listen. He
0: died saving others as a result of an accident in time. Jesus Christ died saving others. Not as an accident in time but as an appointment in time. This had been decided upon in eternity past. It requires complete authority to be able to speak with such certainty and then fulfill what's said here. This man was able to simply sustain lives for years to come. What Christ did was to die in our place and save us from our sins for all eternity not an accident an appointment and it takes all authority to be able to maintain those kinds of appointments with destiny now are you are you struck by the three significant statements that have emerged here including the four I will or will statements that have come about with such detailed precision all of which is fulfilled. Now, once we grasp this, then we're ready to move forward. Because, second of all, what I want you to notice with me is that we need to explain the purpose of Christ's coming. Now, those of you that are in leadership positions understand it's the purpose which drives the plan. You can have all the plans in the world, and they can be shooting up in all directions. But it is critically important you begin with your purpose. and makes absolutely certain that your purpose governs your plan. So now, with the plan of Jesus Christ going to Jerusalem and dying in this manner, we've still got to address the issue, why? We've answered the question, what and how? We still have to answer the question, why? The purpose question. It begins to unfold here. Beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. And kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Talk about letdown. He has just gone through such detail with regard to the whole matter, you see, of his death and resurrection. And she's talking about wanting to have her son seated to the left and to the right of him in his kingdom. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Look at his response. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. We're now dealing with this second explanation that we need to explain the purpose of Christ's coming in verse 20 through 28. And the first element is that Christ's purpose confronts ignorance. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. A request has been given. Our response now is being delivered. And she wants something from Jesus. She doesn't understand the suffering is associated with the Savior and that the cross precedes the crown. Jim Allen sent this Christmas card from his first cry in Bethlehem to his last cry on Calvary. He has given us the gift Of his undying love. Now, I do respect this woman to one degree. Having heard something with regard to the death of Jesus Christ, she evidently still believes there's something more to be experienced. Like that thief on the cross, who would ask that the Lord allow him to be with him in paradise. She knows there's something more. Where is she getting this idea from? In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus had said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes, you see, of Israel. But here's the challenge. Jesus poses a question. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can. They're flippant. Sure, we can, they answered. Notice it's plural. The guys jumped in now. They spoke up. What does Jesus mean by this cup? You know, Socrates, and in the prison cell in Athens, according to Plato's account, took his cup of hemlock without trembling, quote, or changing color or expression, raised the cup to his lips, and very cheerfully and quietly drained it. And when his friends burst into tears, Plato tells us, he rebuked them for their absurd behavior and urged them to keep quiet and be brave. And Socrates, sinful, dies in his sins. Compare that with what Jesus Christ cries out in Gethsemane. He falls to the ground, prays that if it is possible that the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will but what you will here the sinless one does not die innocence the sinless one dies for our sins which cup is it going to be see now what we find here in this purposelessness driven world is that people are drinking from the wrong cup And they've got to ask themselves when they say drink up and be merry on New Year's Eve, what is the true significant cup that addresses the meaninglessness of their souls as they try to drink away all the challenges of the prior year? The world says drink and forget. But when you partake of the bread and the cup at communion, you drink And remember, you see, Christ's purpose confronts ignorance in verse 20 through 23. But secondly, Christ's purpose reveals servanthood in verse 24 through the first part of 28. You see, in verse 24, we're told that when the ten heard about this, they were very indignant. Why? Because they forgot to bring their Jewish mamas. That's why. They didn't have anybody else speaking up for them. Jesus caused their bluff. Verse 25. Pulls them together. It's a teaching moment. You know that the rulers and the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them after we talked about absolute certainty because he has absolute authority. He talks about their authority. Not so with you. Here comes. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Greek word doulos. We get deacon from it. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And we'll pause right there. You see, in secularist greatness, the idea is how many servants you have serving you. But in biblical greatness, the question is how many people are you serving? Not how many people are serving you. And there's the tremendous Contrast between christ 's ways and the world 's ways, you see one day, Chkoyn was in conversation with Richard Nixon in the White House, and President Nixon were, was musing about what people wanted in leaders, and he, and he slowed in his thought processes for a moment, looked into the distance across the south lawn, turned to Cosin and said, "The people really want a leader a little bigger than themselves, don't they, Chuck?" I agreed, said Cosin. I mean, someone like de Gaulle, he continued. There's a certain aloofness, a power that's exuded by great men that people feel and want to follow. Contrast that Jesus here. He's talking about servanthood. He comes not to be served, but to serve. And now he's tying together the Daniel 7 passage about being the Son of Man to the Isaiah 53 passage of being the suffering servant. And now the prophecies of the past are converging in this appointment in the present. And he's willing to take this on for you and for me. Now, if Bilbo is your friend, and he's certainly my friend, And you know what's going to take place some point along the way in the movie The Hobbit. You see, Bilbo is in conversation with Gandalf, and he reaches this point when he says, look, I should like to know about risks, out-of-pocket expenses, time required, and remunerations, and so forth. To which Tolkien then adds, by which he meant, what am I going to get out of this?
1: And, and am i am i going to come back alive and you contrast that with the journey of the savior see what we're doing
0: we're merging the eternal plan with the eternal purpose look then at how this ends look for purpose Just as the Son of Man did not, here it comes, come to, not born to, come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Three twos. Not T-double, T-W-O, but three T-O's. This is his purpose statement. The thirdly, Christ's purpose is to give his life as a ransom for many. Now notice here, he says, come to, and then to give. In other words, his entrance and his exit are found in this one verse. His entrance, he came to. His exit, to give his life. As a ransom for many. And to say to give my life means he did so voluntarily. They didn't take it. He gave it.
1: He did so
0: substitutionary. As a ransom for many. For you and me if we know Christ as Savior. He did so sacrificially on our behalf. A giving, not a taking. USA Today tells us that Daniel's parents sailed toward the USA from Cuba so the eight-year-old could have a better life growing up in America. But the treacherous Florida Straits intervened with their dreams. So as the waves swamped the small motorboat, Daniel's mother lovingly put the family's only life jacket on her son. She knew she, Daniel's father, and the three other adult refugees would face mortal peril on the rough seas. They drowned.
1: Daniel was saved. My parents are in heaven now, said Daniel. They love Jesus. They saved me. But I know Jesus saved me. And someday, I'll be with my parents.
0: He's connecting the cradle to the crown via the cross. Are you? Bird will now live with renewed purpose, we're told. I'm a walking miracle. Christ got me out of the fire. And Him not taking me, that means I have a mission to complete. He'll tell me what it is in due time. It helps to know I have a purpose in life. Salome, James and John's mother, they wanted thrones, one to the left and one to the right of Jesus. But Salome would be standing at that cross and not see her sons, with two thieves. Not on thrones, but on crosses, one to the left and the other to the right of Jesus. The one in the middle, Jesus, died for our sins. The repentant thief on one side died to his sins. The unrepentant thief on the other side died in his sins. Where do you fit into all this? She wanted a throne, and Jesus talked about a cross. And the cross precedes the crown. Jesus told his disciples, you will eventually drink from this cup. James faced his death in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Not as a substitute for sin, but in identification with Christ. John persecuted, flogged, eventually sent to the, to the Isle of Patmos, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. What they share in common? A cup. But not the cup of suffering that Christ experienced, the substitutionary work of the cross, but the cup of identification that we experience when we link forces in oneness with Christ. So now, in this culture, where people are wrestling with what's the meaning, what's the purpose, what does it mean, you pull them back to the story of Jesus, link plan to purpose, link the person to Jesus, and tell them that Jesus came to be our ransom. Let's stand together. You've educated us, Father, through your word. We praise you and thank you, Father. This is a purposeful savior. I came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. I came not to be served but to serve. To give my life as a ransom for many. So thank you, Father, for the fact that Jesus Christ embraced the purpose, executed the plan, and we've got eternal life if we've put faith and trust in Christ. So now, Father, I pray that the greatest Christmas gift of all has been experienced by each one here. And if there's anyone here who has come perhaps spiritually curious, religiously aware, but up to now has not bent the knee within the heart before the Lord of the universe. I pray now that you'll powerfully speak to that
1: heart. May she or she now, seeing what Christ has done for him or her, ask for
0: forgiveness for sin. And put faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation.
1: Speak to that heart. And for those here who love Jesus
0: and know him, help us now to connect purpose to plan and explain this to those who so desperately need to know Christ as Savior. We pray this now in
1: Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.